Good morning. Hope you got your Bibles with you this morning. I hope you've uh, greased them up. We're going to use them this morning. 2 Peter 3, verse 11. Pick up where we left off last week in verse 10. We're going to start in verse 11 this morning of chapter 3. This is the last message in 2 Peter, which for the pastor at least is always a sort of a sad, sad thing to, to finish up. 2 Peter, we're going to be moving towards Galatians next. So if you've got that, I hope you've got a copy of not only that, but there's also some sermon notes. It looks a lot like that looks like this at the back. If you don't have those, make sure you afford yourself of that. So stand with me to your feet in reverence for God's word. Second Peter three, beginning with verse eleven. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people? Art you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we amen with Peter. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So Lord, we ask for you today, irregardless of the the heart of our weeks and the busyness of even our morning, Lord, that you would settle us as we read this. These last words of Peter to your people. So Lord, give us the wisdom. Set us up on our seat. May we leave here actively waiting for you to return. In Jesus' name, you can be seated. So imagine with me for a minute that you're at a wedding. Maybe it's your wedding. The way we used to do it, the church that we've been part of for years, is the, the, the pastor and the groom sort of sneak out almost the side, standing up here waiting as everybody gets in place. But imagine the bride doesn't come. Imagine this, Micah, standing up here. He did, Micah just got me, what, y'all got me, what, a month ago? Yep. And uh, Megan doesn't come. 
Imagine that. So the bride doesn't come. You go looking for her. And what's she doing? She's in, the, she's in the changing room. She's sleeping. Got her jogging pants on, T-shirt, hair up in a bun. She's not prepared. It's not what drives the preparation, the planning, the eager anticipation. It's not the wedding itself. It is a desire to be joined in perfect oneness with their spouse that drives all the eager anticipation. And so this morning, in the same way, what we look forward to, the day of the Lord, we look forward to, not as a destination, we look forward to it, a day when our faith becomes sight. That, become, that means it becomes a visible reality and we will be joined in oneness with our Lord forever. That's what we look forward to. That's what drives our preparation just as it drives the bride. And so, let us reorient ourselves this morning that it is Jesus Christ Himself that is the object of our faith. This is what Peter is telling us. Yes, the day of the Lord is coming. Jesus is the object of your faith. Keep your eyes, keep your hope set on Him. And when you do, there's going to be some visible realities in your life. So how do we wait? How do we wait patiently? We talked about that. We began it last week. We asked the question, have you ever felt just cried out to the Lord, when will what is wrong with the world be made right? All this is brokenness. I told you last week, Tuesday, we were planning on flying to Kenya. They're, they're fighting, they're killing each other over there. So we're not going to be able to go right now. This just makes you cry out to the Lord even more. There's, there's a lot wrong with the world. Verse 10 told us last week, the day of the Lord will come. And listen, when He comes, His justice comes with Him. We need to begin to never be able to separate. When we hear the word righteousness, we ought to hear the word justice. Comes with Him. So how do I wait patiently? In other words, how do I wait without getting my feet swept out from under me in the process? We talked about it last week. One of the first aspects of waiting patiently is to be actively evangelistic. We said that we do this because that's what Jesus did. Jesus gathered his sheep into his fold. When he left us, he left us with one thing to do, make disciples. But there's four more here this morning. I wanted you to see in the rest of his letter. The first one is how do we wait patiently? We must wait in godliness. Look at verse 11 and 14. Both emphasize this. You see, what he's been saying the whole time is what a person says and does is a pretty good indication of what he is. It's just what the heretics have been doing inside the church. Remember, these heretics, they're not out there. They're in here. They're inside the church. Remember, no second coming, no day of judgment, no future new world. Remember why they were saying this about the future? It's driven by their own sensuality. It's their own hedonistic lifestyle. You see, they couldn't separate it either. They wanted to do what they wanted to do, so they believed what they wanted to believe. Said, here's the reality, neither can we. So I ask you this morning, as we orient ourselves, 
What is your... What does your eschatology say about your worldview? In other words, what does your belief about what's going to happen in the future drive how you see all of reality? You see, how we are living declares what we are believing. Are we living for temporal or eternal? You see, this changes everything. It changes how we view rewards how we view treasures, what our goals are, what our plans are. I just challenge you this morning, when it comes to your future thinking, are you driven more by escape or mission? Because the Bible drives us to the future with mission, never escape. And so, verses 11 to 13 simply do this. Since this, then that. If this is true, it's using the word since, Since it is true, then this should be true. And so let's look at what it says. It says, first, since all this is temporary, look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Look at verse 12. It says the same thing. Heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's one of the clearest places in Scripture. It's talking about God's going to use fire as the means when His judgment comes. What is He saying? Look, Look at verse 11. It's interesting. It says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. In other words, this is present tense. It's present. In other words, he's saying, he's speaking of it as if it is happening now. Why does he do that? They call this the prophetic present. The reason he speaks of it as if it's happening now is because of the certainty of its occurrence. He says, oh, this is since, this is going to happen. This is temporary. And here was my thought as I thought about, well, Stephen, you know, all of us with a little white on the, white on the roof have the, the advantage of time to look back, at a, look back at an awful lot of mistakes we've made in our life. You know what come to mind of this idea of ever since everything is temporary? It is that most of our life is spent buying a $5 box of cereal to get the 25-cent toy at the bottom. Isn't it true? Do we not have to? Me and Christina can look back with now with perfect clarity at how ridiculous it was to not see that the gift of children was a gift from God, not something to be planned, organized, based off whether it's spring or summer, whether we had a four-room house or, or, or a ten-room house. But so it began that our view of the future drove how we lived in the present. So we built houses and and had to have minivans because everybody else had a minivan. Then we had to have a Suburban, then trucks and campers and boats. And and here it began. And what does he say? Simply buying cereal boxes for that little plastic ring. He said, listen, this is all temporary. Listen to what he's saying. This is, I want you to see Matthew 19, 28. Matthew 19, 28. This is what is coming to you. In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you will have you who have been following, followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, now I'm talking to you, everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters and fathers or mothers or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who will be first will be last and last 
will be first. This is all temporary. Since it's temporary. And since we are waiting for something new. It's contrasting versus something that's old. Look at verse 13. But according to the promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. Turn with me to Revelation 21. I want you to see this. Verse 1. Keep your place here. We're going to look at this a couple times. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what can we see here? It says, since what we have is new, it's perfect, it's eternal, it's prepared, and it's from God. Since this is temporal, this old, since the new is eternal, it's perfect, it's been prepared, and it's coming from God. But not only that, since we have a righteous home, this new is righteous. It's a place where righteousness lives. You see that verse 13? But according to the promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That word dwells means lives, inhabits. This is presently, actively living and inhabiting. Revelation 21.3 gives us a little bit more clarity about our righteous home. Why it is so good and why it is righteous. Verse 3, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things passed away. This is what's new. The dwelling place. Our home is where God is. That's why it's righteous. Our righteous home. It said, so since the world for us is new, it is a transformed place where righteousness is simply the order of the day. There's no unrighteousness there. And since there's no unrighteousness, there's no sin. Since there's no sin, there's no brokenness. It says, since all this is true, then, look at verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now you've got to contrast that with chapter 2 in 2 Peter verse 13. You see, there is when he's speaking of these false teachers. They were false teachers with a false eschatology, a false view of the future, and a, and a sensual lifestyle. You know what he calls them? Look at verse 13. What does he call them? Blots and blemishes. He said, they are blots and blemishes. But you, since this is true, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. You see the contrast? Make no mistake here. Look at the word diligent. Here's what he's, he's just not saying this morning. You need to be godly. And you need to be at peace. 
What he's saying is you need to live with such diligence, with such passion, with such urgency that it is your aim of life to expect him to come. And when he comes, he's going to find me being like my Jesus. That's my expectation. That's what he's saying this morning. People. That's what Peter's saying. Listen, I'm about, this is his last will and testament. Peter's not going to live much longer after. He said, I've made it my aim of life to live for His return and to be found, be diligent, be found by Him. When He comes, this is what He's going to find me doing. going to be found in the godliness. This is, remember, this is Peter's point of both his letters. Some of the ladies have been looking at 1 Peter. Let's look, in, let's look at it. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. This is the same, he's saying the same thing. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. It says, therefore, there's that therefore. Every time you read that, you know, you've got to go back and read the other. Understand what this is there for. Therefore, preparing your minds for actions. You see that? And being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18, knowing. What do you know? That you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you see it? Here's what motivates our holy life. That I was not ransomed by anything temporal. Nothing temporal ransomed me. It can't, it doesn't, and it never will. I was ransomed by something that's eternal. And it wasn't a thing. It was a person. And his name is Jesus. He ransomed me. That's the object of my faith. It's the object when he saves me. And it is the object of my faith in the morning when I get up out of bed. He is what I'm longing for. So what does this look like? Second Peter now. Verse, chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that to God's people... To the redeemed, he's been given divine power. And to God's people, has been granted something. That is, all things that pertain to life and what? Godliness. How is that? Through knowing him. There's the means. Therefore, verse 5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with Love. This is what it looks like. The Bible is not vague. Be found in godliness. Be found in peace. You see, where righteousness dwells, when Christ returns, righteousness is not the only thing dwelling there. Peace is dwelling there too. And so, as people who have been ransomed from the feudal ways of our forefathers, we long to not only live in righteousness, but to live in and out of peace. That means that peace describes a state of being that's being right with God and entering into His presence. And listen, that is, comes in stark contrast to what He said about the false teachers. 
He said, they are being held, kept under condemnation for the wrath of God. But you live at peace. It's good news this morning. Romans, and just, this is not in your notes. Turn with me to Romans 12, 9. You need to see this. If you ever think, and I'm not sure what he means by godliness. What exactly am I supposed to be doing? Is godliness just to me not doing things? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Romans 12, verse 9. I'm just going to read this. not going to say anything. I just want you to soak this in. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is equal. Pause. Are we supposed to hate? What does abhor mean? Go back and look that up in the definition. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. and Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what it looks like. To live in godliness and at peace when He comes for us. This is our charge. The more we know Christ, the more this will make what our life looks like. And we are to be godly. We are to be active. Look at verse 12, back in 2 Peter 3. It says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Two words there, waiting, hastening. This is our word. It was, it's in verses 12, 13, and 14. And remember when the Bible repeats the word, it's important. Waiting for. This is the, gets to the reason for our righteous living. This is eager anticipation. Longing. A longing expectancy. For What? I know I'm repeating myself this morning, but it needs to be repeated. We are not, are we simply longing for God to pour His wrath out on the wicked? Are we simply longing for the destruction of this world? Are we simply longing to be delivered? No, we're not. That's not the supremacy. Our longing is based on the object of our faith. We are longing to be with Christ. Today, you got to realize that I'm longing to be with Christ. But I know if He comes, some of that I love are going to go to hell. This drives my mission. I live with that kind of urgency. I could long for my Jesus and love the lost at the same time. The more I love Him, the more God will give me a heart for them. Live with urgency, with expectancy. And look at this. You ever see that commercial where the top of the guy's head blows off? I don't know what it is. What is it, insurance or something? I don't know. 
Verse 12 ought to blow your mind because it's saying right here, look at what it says. Hastening the day, the coming of the day of the Lord. Is that just another way of saying longing? Listen, remember the first rule of the Bible, read it. What does it say? The most natural reading of this seems to be saying, Peter seems to be saying that our godly lives can somehow speed up the day of the Lord. You see that? Pow! You know, that's, that's what he says. So let's, what do we know? We know that God himself knows in advance what people will do because he's omniscient. That's not all we know. Now listen, before you spit it out, study it. Okay? The Bible is also clear that he foreordains what people will do. Write this down. I'm not going to go to them. If you want to see what the Bible says, Proverbs 16.33, Isaiah 46.9-11, Lamentations 3, verses 37 and 38, Amos 4, verse 13, Ephesians 1, verse 11. So what is he saying? He says, the way we live hastens the day. What else does he say? Matthew 6.10 tells us the way we pray hastens the day. What are we supposed to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen. Prayers change things. Prayers cause things. This is why we pray. God tells us to pray. He says your, your manner of life hastens the day. Your prayers hasten the day. Matthew 24, 14 tells us. The way we proclaim hastens the day. This is what it says. Matthew 24, verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this is what drives us, our mission, in just a few minutes. Why are we going to Boston? Why are we going to Central Asia? Why are we going where the gospel is not proclaimed? Because the word says when a testimony has come to the nations, then he's going to come. This drives us. We want them to know, and we want the Lord to come. This drives what we do. We're active. See at the point? We're active. Longing, waiting, hastening, living godly. But listen, you've got to be on guard. Remember, it's one of the last things he's saying. He's getting it all in tonight. At the end of this letter. He's going to get it all in. Verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful with shallow teaching. This is what deceives. He, he goes and brings Paul into this. He says, just as our beloved Paul, the end of verse 15. It says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, these things that we've been talking about. That's what he's saying. He said, he said Paul's saying the same thing as me. Listen to what he says. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Doesn't that make you feel good? Peter's saying, sometimes that Paul, he just blows my mind. It's right over the top of my head. It's like, he said, what's happening? Because this is deep, and because this is in 1 Peter 1, verse 1, says that Peter wrote his first letter to those in Asia Minor. And remember, 2 Peter 3, verse 1 says that this was the second letter that he had wrote. So most believe these two letters were wrote close succession, written to the people in Asia Minor, which means, if that's true, that the letters he's talking about would be the letter we're fixing to start studying, that is Galatians. 
It could have been Ephesians. It could have been Colossians. He said all of these letters, verse 16, they teach the same thing, the necessity of godly living. He said, here's what's happening. You know what Martin Luther said this. He said, most likely these false teachers were twisting justification by faith and freedom in Christ to make it mean what they wanted to mean so they could live the way that they wanted to live. It's reasonable. He said, be on guard. So brothers and sisters, can I warn you this morning? Be on guard when someone stands in front of your class to teach or in front of your pulpit to preach and says, who needs theology? Who needs doctrine? We just need it, practical preacher. Just tell me how to raise my teenager. Just tell me how not to kill my mother-in-law. We need to understand these things. But none of them mean anything, and none of them have any authority outside of God's Word, and God's Word is about God. You can have no truth without theology, and without doctrine, people perish. Be careful with shallow teaching. Why is shallow teaching so dangerous? Because look at verse 7. There's lawless people out there and they're trying to knock your feet out from under you. That's why it's so important. And so he says in verse 17, you emphatically, imperative, take care, participle, carried away. You take care to not be carried away by these guys. Apostasy happens when you let down your guard and people sweep you away. Listen, should we not be concerned that during the most formidable years of kids and students, the goal is entertainment and not growth? May it never be so here. And it won't be so as long as we have something to say about it because God's Word says the most important thing is that we grow. There are enemies out there and they're trying to take out the weak. And who are the weak among us if they're not the new people in Christ and they are our very children? They twist Scripture. Interesting here, they say, he says, they twist it. They twist Paul's letters just like they do other Scripture. Scripture there, graphe, is used to describe the Old Testament. He says, Paul's letters, Holy Scripture, they twist it just like they twist the Old Testament. Just be on guard. Let me say this very clearly before I move off of this point. What should I Should you try to evangelize heretics? Can I ask you a question? It's a biblical question and it has a right answer. What does a shepherd do to a wolf in the flock? He invited over for tea. Listen, we need to understand what Jesus says about false teachers, what Paul says about false teachers, what Peter says about false teachers. Invite a wolf to supper and they will eat your kids for dessert. Better be on guard, brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. This is the point. We don't tolerate them in the body of Christ because there are new believers with little floaties on their arms learning how to swim. And these false teachers want to take them to the deep end and let them sink. And we must protect them. How can I protect them? I want to teach them the same thing that Peter's teaching me. Verse 18. We must grow. We must grow. Look, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This ties in with verse 15. Verse 15 says, And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. So what does he, what does he mean? 
by count the patience of the Lord as salvation. This takes us back up to verse 9. Remember what verse 9 says? God is patient towards who? Towards you. Remember we said verse 9 was, was a comfort for God's people. God is patient towards you. He wasn't willing that you should perish, but that you come to repentance. God has been patient. Here's what He's saying. This time as we wait, count it as patience of the Lord as salvation. To pursue salvation rather than godlessness. And there's two potential meanings of this. He could be talking about evangelism for those who are lost, and surely that matches with the whole context of Scripture. But in context this morning, what he wants us to understand is he's saying this in verse 15, and then he makes it very clear in verse 18. The goal of these false teachers is to pervert the truth, to keep us from growing in the grace and knowledge of God. And God has put you on this patch of dirt for this time so that you may grow in the grace of the knowledge of the Savior Jesus Christ and everyone else, and we shouldn't let anyone get in the way of that. You have this time to grow in your assurance and in your growth in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10 says clearly to those he's written this letter to, to God's people, be the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our focus. First, it's broken into two facets. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge. Both of them, the center of this, is the object of our faith. is the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to grow in grace? I love John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. It is one of the problems when we only sing part of a song because music tells a story. And John Newton clearly wanted us to understand this picture of grace. It says the grace that saved a wretch like you is the same grace that will lead you home. And everything in the middle. It says grow in that grace. You see, grace is an amazing gift. And it's given by God to His people. It is His resources given to all believers in order that they may live out the gospel in their actual life. This is the foundation of Christianity. It is grace. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. Just a couple of, just a few verses to show this grace. How does this grace grow? How do we nurture it? How does God give it to us? When does God give it to us? 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What's the point of that verse? All. <laughs> it's repeated. All sufficiency. Make all grace, all sufficiency, all things at all times. This is what he provides for believers. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. You remember the context of this passage. God had given Paul some kind of suffering. God gave it to him. And he didn't want it. <laughs> so he prayed, God, remove this from me. Remove it. God responds, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response, Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is he saying? God's telling him, I love you so much, Paul. I love you too much to let you stand up in pride. So I'm going to put you in humbleness. And what Paul says, praise the Lord. Because here's what he knows. No weakness, no insults, no hardships, no persecution, no calamities, no power resting upon me. So please, God, if this is what it takes to experience your powerful grace in my life, bring it on. This is maturity, brothers and sisters. This is what it looks like. This is how we begin to think and pray when we begin to grow in grace. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us another picture of grace. It is the picture of the gifts God has given you to serve God's church. We do not retire from serving God. Romans, 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good steward of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, one who speaks the oracle of God. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that what? That God supplies. In order that everything, God may be glorified. That Jesus Christ right now, the production team is using what God has given them. And it's grace. I'm using what God has given me. That's grace. The kids ministry. Security. And when you get up and go home, it will be God has given you a gift. Use it. That's how you grow in grace. You use what God gives you. Grow in grace. Grow in the knowledge. This is what we've been talking about. This is his whole point for 2 Peter. Knowledge. The knowledge of Christ. Turn with, look back with me at chapter 1. Let's just remind ourselves what we've learned. Chapter 1, verse 2. We learned that grace and peace will be amplified in knowing Jesus Christ as God and Savior. Verse 3 told us we learned that everything we need for life and godliness is available through knowing Him. Verses 5 and 6, look at it. We learned that growing in the knowledge of Christ is necessary for living the gospel life. Verse 8 told us that we learned that only people who grow in godliness demonstrate that their knowledge of Christ is fruitful. But there is a future reality to this growth. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 tells us That growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ has a future longing and expectation. It says, for now, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There is a future reality. Do you see the object of our knowing? The same object of our knowing now is the object of our knowing then. And the way you know you know Him, going to know Him then, is how you know Him now. If you don't long to know Him now, you don't, you're not going to want to know Him then. This, it says, so perfectly knowing comes when the Lord's day, this is why we long for it. Because He already knows us. Look at the text. He already knows us perfectly. We don't know Him perfectly. This is why oftentimes these things, even some of the things I've just said, you're sitting there going, I don't know about that. I'm going to have to go home and study that. Praise the Lord. Listen, quit leaving places because you don't agree 
when they challenge you to study, here's what I want you to do. I want you to know the Lord. This is what I want you to do. I don't want us to always agree. We're not going to agree until we get to heaven or glorified and realize we're all wrong. But here's what we long. We press on to know the Lord. Let us know Him. Let us press on to know Him. The more we know Him, the more we can spot the false teachers. 1 Timothy 6.20 says, There is a kind of knowledge that's not knowledge. So, brothers and sisters, the point Peter's telling us is that deep roots make stable trees. So grow deep in God. The deeper you grow in knowing God, the more practical you will live out in holiness. And if you think you know a lot about God and it's not bleeding out into your actual life, you know nothing of God. You only have knowledge about God. So what today? Am I asleep? We all have a tendency to nod off whether we want to admit it or not. My sleeping bride, have I nodded off waiting for the Lord's return? I want to to end differently than what I had planned. Because as I begin to think about in my own life, what does it it look like to sleep? and How do I not sleep? and How do I be prepared? I had to think about Romans 12, verses 1 1 to 3. That here's what I long for you, the same as I long for me, that we be found living a life as a living sacrifice. And here was my question I asked about that verse. This is what caused me to change my application today. Is if Christ has already offered himself once for all as a sacrifice for us, why is Paul telling me to live as a living sacrifice now? So I want you to, I just want to teach you something. I want you to check me on it. So write down the book of Leviticus. Study Leviticus later. I want you to see what your Savior has done for you. And our response to it. There are five offerings laid out in the old sacrificial system. The first was called the burnt offering. The burnt offering was the fundamental offering. You can track the burnt offering all the way into Genesis. All the way until it was instituted into the sacrificial system. This was a personal offering because our sin is a personal affront to a holy God. And it incurs His wrath. And so the burnt offering was for propitiation. It was to remove God's wrath, to bring God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus bore the anger of God for us. So now for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is only grace and mercy. It's good news this morning. Christ paid that offering. There's another offering. There is a sin offering. You see, the first one, burnt offering is personal. The sin offering is is a medical look. It is a cleansing. It is not that when we sin, we contaminate ourselves. Because we are sinful, everything I touch is contaminated. And so there must be a cleansing. This is what this offering represented. Jesus Christ shed His blood and cleansed us from the dirt of our sin. It is gone, past, present, and future because of the blood of our Savior. He accomplished that offering. He wasn't done. There was another offering called a guilt offering. This is for repayment. You see, your sin caused a debt to a holy God. And somebody had to pay it. And so Christ stood in your place and not only bore the wrath, you substitute for that wrath, removed the wrath, cleansed us, 
covered us. He repaid the debt. You got to hear this this morning. There is no debt. He paid it. Offerings not done. Two more offerings. You see this? Jesus paid all of these. We don't pay them. He's paid them once for all. There was another offering. It was called a grain offering. It was the offering of dedication and thankfulness. Here's what they did. This was a direct response to the burnt offering. Because our redemption had been provided, God's people would dedicate themselves fully to their Father. Gratefulness to God for doing what they could never do. This is what all of history has proved to us. Christ accomplished what we could not. Our response, Romans 12, is teaching us that our response today does not, listen to me, this is important today. Some people have taught us that somehow what you do, your holiness, removes God's anger. Listen, Jesus already bore the anger. You don't have any anger. You're at peace with God. You're at peace with God because of Christ. You don't have to do something to get right. Christ pays the debt. He cleanses. How long have we heard preachers giving us guilt trips about giving and giving and and going and whatever as if there was some kind of debtor's ethic that we're supposed to do to pay Jesus back for what He did for us? Listen, there is no debt. We are free. We are free. Praise God, we are free. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, as a response to our Jesus. This is what drives our holiness. There's another offering. Fellowship offering. This is awesome. This is what what happened at the fellowship offering. God partook in the offering. The priest partook in the offering. And the worshiper partook in the offering. This was a fellowship offering. An offering of communion. You see the beauty of the Bible? This is what Christ provided for us. Do you remember what he said to his disciples? I will not eat this again till I eat it with you in my kingdom. And brothers and sisters, we will eat it with him. He will come. And so we have been perfectly joined in Christ. We have communion. We don't need a priest. Christ stands at our priest, seated at the right hand of the Father, and gives us 24-hour access to God Almighty throughout the blood of our Son. And here's our response today. It is verse 18. It is that now that all of our lives are simply a doxology to the glory of our Jesus Christ until He comes. So brothers and sisters, may we live this way. Not to earn something. Not to please something. But as a response to the work of Christ and His person. And one day we will worship Him perfectly. Turn with me to Psalms. I want you to pray. The praise team, y'all go ahead and come up. Psalms 27. I just want us to read this together. I don't know where you are today. I I don't know whether you understand what's going on in your life or whether you, maybe your prayer life is going real good. Maybe you don't know how to pray. Maybe you don't understand what's going on in your life. Would you pray this with me? Psalms 27 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
When the evil doers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. Though wars rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For He will hide me in, the, in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father, my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. All of God's people said, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us stand and worship our Lord.